Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And then I realized, you know what, I actually don't want to be the boss. I I really don't want to be the CEO. It's a much harder job than mine. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. And you are in the right place if you're after inspiration, uplifting stories, and practical advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. And if you're looking to get ahead or trying to figure out what's next for you, stay tuned. And thank you to all of you who've left us such great reviews. We really, really appreciate it. We certainly do. It's one of the main ways we can see that what we're putting out is making a difference. And we do read everyone. So please, if you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. Now to this week's episode. Our guest this week is the real deal. I'm talking about Mia Friedman who founded and is creative director of women's digital media company, Mamma Mia. It's one of the largest female-focused media businesses in the world. Indeed it is. And I really like that you described Mia as the real deal, because I don't think we've ever had a guest who is prepared to be as open and honest about her life and career as Mia is. Yeah, exactly right. And whether it's in our conversation today or in her Instagram posts or in the book she's written, really open and often vulnerable because Mia really wants to show her life warts and all, not just a glossy edited version. And I love that about her. Yeah, me too. She's totally authentic. Mm. She really does care about shattering the women should be and look perfect myth. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with Mia, she's a household name in Australia. She became the world's youngest editor of Cosmopolitan magazine at just 24 years of age. And she's gone on to remain a high profile staple in the Australian media scene ever since. In this episode, you'll hear how Mia advises young women to think of their career as a lattice, not as a ladder, and exactly what that means. How she was persuaded to stick out a nightmare job for months in order to insist on being made redundant. How she and her husband manage working together, and how Mia realized she didn't want, nor was she the right person to be CEO of her very own company. Without further ado, let's dive into this fascinating conversation with the amazing Mia Friedman. Mia Friedman, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you here. Now, a lot of our audience are overseas. I'm sure our Australian listeners will have heard of you and know what you do. But for particularly our overseas audience, how do you describe to a stranger what you do? Well, I am the co-founder and the chief creative officer of the Mamma Mia Women's Media Company. We create written content, video content, and we have the largest women's podcast network in the world. What does an average day look like for you? 
Well, an average day, I'm probably up at about six. I have three kids, but the eldest is 21 and he actually works here. So I don't have anything to do with his life. (laughs) He usually helps me more organize mine. But my youngest kids are 13 and 10, but they're pretty self-sourcing. They sort themselves out. So I exercise every morning. It helps me managing my anxiety. I take medication for it, but I also have to exercise and get a lot of sleep and have a pretty, not a strict routine, but a regular routine. That really helps me. So then I'll grab a green smoothie, head to work, listen to our daily podcast, The Quickie, on the way to work to catch up on the news and head in with our editorial team for a nine o'clock stand-up meeting where we go through the numbers from the previous day on podcast videos and and written content and we look at what's going to happen for that day and then people pitch their story ideas and the editor sets the day. And then I'll usually have to record at least one podcast. So I host a interview podcast called No Filter. I'm the co-host of another podcast called Mama Mia Out Loud, which is kind of a roundup of all the different things women are talking about that week. And yeah, so I'll usually be recording one of those. And then I'll just be in a lot of meetings. I also run a platform and another part of our business called Lady Startup, which is something I started to help women start their own businesses essentially because when I started Mamma Mia that I had no sort of role models or support. It was really lonely and confusing. And so we run courses to help women start their own businesses or grow their businesses and we have a Lady Starter podcast and Instagram. So I'm very in that kind of female entrepreneur space and helping to support and promote other women's businesses. So usually I'm you know, that might involve taking a selfie of what I'm wearing because I always try to wear clothes by lady startups to filming a bit of our course to having meetings, all of those kind of different things. Pretty busy days. It's and a busy day. Yeah. Yeah. Lots, lots and lots of variety. Yes. Now we're going to talk a lot more about what you do now. I think you framed it really well, but what I want to do now is go way back, but not way, way back because you're not that old. <laughs> oh, um, you'd be surprised. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm 47. Oh, me too. It's a good age. Uh, it is 71. Yes. Really good vintage. I love my 40s. <laughs> yeah. I'm enjoying them very much. Yeah, me too. Me Way too. To but it's the best decade, I think. I agree. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't get worse as you get older, guys. <laughs> you give you give that shits and, and you know who you are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, well, let's rewind back to your childhood. Hmm. What do you remember from Quite your childhood? A long time ago. What do I remember? Oh, I had parents who were very social justice minded, both of them. My father was an immigrant from South Africa. And then my mother was a feminist. She had become a teenage mother. She'd had my brother very early. She was only 18 when she had him and she'd sort of had this shotgun wedding and shit, not literally shotgun, but like at that time, unmarried mothers just usually had their babies taken from them and abortion was illegal. So she had my brother, got married and decided that she didn't want to be married, of course. So she left him when she was about 21 or 22. And at that stage, there was no such thing as no fault divorce. So women could risk losing custody of their children just for going on a date with another man. And so she was very awakened, I suppose, by that experience and then reading The Female Eunuch and So she was kind of a feminist and I grew up in this house where social justice wasn't even something. I mean, yes, you know, my parents took me on nuclear disarmament marches on weekends and stuff. Really? Yeah. And I like remember at school starting petitions to save the seals, you know, and having cake stalls to raise money for the RSPCA. So it was something that was just very much woven into the fabric of our lives. It wasn't even something that I was conscious of. 
Yeah, which would have been actually quite different then. I mean, now we're seeing the youth like really stand up and I guess take the mantle that we need them to do. But that would have been pretty unusual, I would have thought, when you were growing up. It was, especially when my father had success in his business when I was probably in primary school, late primary school. And so then I, they could afford to send me to a private high school and all of my friends would kind of be at tennis days and I would be going to nuclear disarmament rallies. <laughs> and so it was very different yeah. to the upbringing of a lot of my friends. And, and so what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I didn't know, but I knew that I fell in love with magazines probably when I was about 10 or so when I started reading Dolly magazine, which was like a teenage magazine here in Australia, really iconic. What I loved even more than the magazine was the editor who at the time was a woman called Lisa Wilkinson. She'd become the youngest editor in Australia. She was only 21 when she started editing this magazine. And I was probably around 10 or 11. And it was the only form of women's media, women and girls. The only way that we could find out anything about issues relating to being a girl or a woman was through women's magazines and teenage magazines, which sounds very funny when you try to explain it to someone these days. Mm, yeah. My kids are kind of like, what? What do yeah. you mean? <laughs> so that sort of opened my eyes to what media was. And I just became an absolute magazine junkie from a really, really early age. And so I did communications at uni, but I only lasted a year. And then I started doing work experience at Cleo, where Lisa Wilkinson was then the editor. And I just kind of stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed doing, I guess, what would be called an unpaid internship now. And eventually I got offered a sort of an entry-level position. I just worked my way up from there when I was about 19. Wow. You did your internship at 19, but by the time you were 24, you were the youngest editor of Cosmopolitan. I was, yeah. So got to the point where I knew that my next job was going to be based on the experience that I had rather than a degree. So I just worked my way up and then was offered that job which was in the same company as Cleo magazine, but we'd been fierce rivals. But I loved that and I was there for the next seven years really, really happily. Did you have any hesitations at that young age to take on a pretty responsible oversight position, decision-making position? Did you have any sort of fears at all? Not at all. Well, which is pretty amazing. Not really, because the younger you are, the more you think you know. I know a a lot less now than I knew then, if you know what I mean. Like, (laughs) I think that they say confidence is wasted on on the young because you don't know what you don't know. So I think probably I was a little bit daunted. I was the youngest person on staff when I started at Cosmo as the editor. But by the time I left, I was the oldest. So things changed pretty rapidly. And how did others who were older than you react to having you in place? Not very well, all of them. I was, you know, it can be difficult dealing with overconfident young people. (laughs) I (laughs) know what that's like. Now I kind of roll my eyes. And, And Lisa Wilkinson used to say about me, you know, because people would complain to her when I was even at Cleo and she was my boss and people would complain about me to her and say, Mia, she's just too confident and who does she think she is? And Lisa says now that she saw something in me and she would say to them, look, she's like a Labrador puppy, like really cute and everyone loves a puppy, but sometimes she'll get overexcited and jump on the couch and piss on the carpet. And you've just got to try to be patient with her because one day she'll grow into a really helpful, you know, loyal dog. This just sounds so wrong. I know. I kind of have tortured that metaphor. I'm sure she told it, used it much better than me. But I think she was right. It was like, you know, I did. I pissed a lot of people off because I didn't know 
anything about managing people. I mean, I knew what I'd seen my own bosses do. I just wanted to get into the work. That was what I was most focused on. You spent 15 years, if I'm right, in in magazines. I did. Then you took a job in television. Mm. And that, from all accounts, didn't go so well. Can you tell us about that time? (laughs) I was really bad. I was probably the single biggest mistake I've made in my career because I went into a very toxic culture at the time. And also I went into a job that didn't exist because while it was a great idea to have a woman sitting around the boardroom table, and that was really important, that woman had to have a job and it had to be a pre-existing job. It couldn't just be the person who was here to tell all the blokes that they were getting it wrong because of course that person is not going to be very welcome around that table and nobody else but the CEO wanted me there. It was just an awful time. And at first I thought, oh, maybe I'm just out of my comfort zone and I'm used to being in women's magazines and when I could control the culture at my own magazine, but I don't want to quit. And then I realized, no, I really do want to quit. It's really (laughs) awful. I really hate it. And so I spent seven months trying to extract myself from there with a good redundancy, which I eventually secured. But it was a really bruising, humiliating time. It was very publicly humiliating. You know, people inside the company who didn't want me there would leak to the media. And and because this TV network was such oxygen for the media, everything that anyone did there at this time became news. And I wasn't used to that. And so when I left in this very bruising, humiliating way, I was very paranoid that that attention would follow me. But what I quickly learned was that actually no one cared about me at all. Once I'd left there, I was only interesting because I was in that job and so publicly failing in that job. So it gave me some clear air to start Mamma Mia and to grow up while no one was really paying much attention. And just before we go on to Mamma Mia, you know, I would have thought that it would have been really tempting to just actually walk out and forget the redundancy. Oh, it was. So how did you know you, that? What made you keep going? That's a very female thing to do. Um, it is a very relationships and jobs yeah. will just walk. And I think sometimes men know that and they just turn up the discomfort levels until you just, it's a fight or flight response. It's self-preservation. It's unco- like I wasn't physically in danger, but it was so unpleasant that I just desperately felt unsafe and I needed to get away. I have to say it was my husband who really said, you're owed this. You've worked for this company for 15 years. You were brought in to do a job that no longer exists and that never probably really existed. You are owed a redundancy. And so I stood up and negotiated for it, even though it was incredibly unpleasant and distressing. It meant that I had then financial buffer to start my own business. Yeah, good on you. I mean, it's. I think it's so important for us to stand up and really own our grounds because, as you say, they will make it so uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I'm really relieved and grateful that, that I felt fortified enough to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And then you went on to start Mamma Mia mm. from your living room? Yeah, I did. Well, I didn't. I say in my living room. It was every, it was all, every room in my house because I just had a laptop. <laughs> so I just walked around with my cup of tea and my laptop looking for somewhere to perch. Not knowing what I was doing, but knowing that there was a gap in the market and I believed a market in that gap that I wanted to fill because back in 2007, women's websites were very siloed. So there were parenting sites or there were gossip sites or there were cooking sites or there were beauty sites. I was interested in those things, but also news and current affairs and pop culture. And I wanted all of those things in one place, which sounds very obvious now because that's how we're used to getting our social media feeds with 
a story about Syria next to a story about the Kardashians. But back then, people couldn't understand it. I mean, women could understand it, but I remember trying to explain the concept to a, a man in an advertising agency, and he was like, women? Wow, that's a really interesting niche. It's so <laughs> really? crazy. Hang yeah. on. Just for our listeners, how long ago was this? This was around 10 years ago. That's just crazy. It was a really interesting niche. But I guess it must have been hard to actually then think about, well, what's the actual proposition? Particularly if advertisers who bring in money didn't get it. Yeah, I know. So I was just focused on building an audience and I had no business plan. I had no plan. I just was creating every post, teaching myself how to code, resizing images, moderating comments. And sometimes there'd be 2000 comments on a post and I'd have to moderate them because I didn't know that at the time there was no ability for me to pre-moderate comments. I had to moderate them as they came in live on the site. And then you'd (laughs) delete someone's comment and then they'd leave another comment demanding to know why their comment had been deleted. God, (laughs) that sounds hideous. It was hectic. And it was like 18 hour days, seven days a week. And I had another baby during that time. Of course you did. (laughs) And I had a nanny at home. I don't want to pretend that I I was kind of just, you know, but I was like breastfeeding through the night, answering comments and working these long hours. But all I knew is that I wanted to build this audience. And I kind of imagined that someone would just come along and buy me, which shows you how little I understood. Because as my husband pointed out, there's nothing to buy. It's you walking around this house with a laptop. Like you can't buy that. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And also I, you couldn't scale it, which I learned after two years of yeah. earning like, I don't know, $3 in Google ads and running myself absolutely into the ground. So it wasn't until my husband who was looking for a business to kind of invest his time in decided to offer his services and say, what if I come in as well and we try to actually monetize it? And the first thing we need to do is stop it from being a single point of failure in you and make it into a women's website edited by you, not with every piece of content created by you. And all the comments moderated. And all the comments moderated by you. And I said, that's the worst idea ever. It won't work. And of course it worked. (laughs) And he was right because what was the alternative? You are omnipresent in some ways. You know, you've, we've heard about all the different channels and programs and podcasts and sites that Mamma Mia has, but then there's the social media channels to connect as well. Mm. How do you manage that for you personally, that always on nature of, of your business and your presence? So I've lived a very happy Twitter-free life for a long time now. Facebook has moved more to groups. Instagram, I still really, really love. But again, I try to stay disconnected from the commentary around what I share. Having said that, I've got to be super, super careful of what I share because I can share a picture of me doing something silly on the weekend and then it'll end up in the Daily Mail and they'll write a whole story about it. So that's weird and disconcerting, but you have to accept that as a public figure and it is social media. It's like if I'm putting it out there, it's not like they came onto my private property and stuck a photo you know, lens through my window. So I just have to be careful. Having said that, I try to use my platform to do good things like to support other women's businesses or show photos of what my stomach looks like, you know, to keep it real because it can be really easily seductive to get into that thing of I'll just post a photo when I'm looking nice today or when I've got something good to say, whereas I think it's also important to be honest about the vulnerable times. And one area that we'd love to talk to you about because I think it will really resonate for many people is your experience of suffering from anxiety. Yeah. Maybe you could talk about what that journey's been like for you. Sure. I guess looking back now, I can see that I had anxiety even as a kid. I just kind of thought that's what 
life was like. Worrying that my parents, when they were late home from work, had been killed in a car accident. When I was a teenager and started to have sex, worrying that I would get HIV, even though I hadn't actually even had sex. And I knew how HIV was transmitted, but just being super, you know, health anxiety around worrying then then anxiety around flying so with anxiety often it will attach itself to something it might be tunnels it might be spiders it might be flying it might be what if i have cancer your anxiety will f- can get very good at attaching itself to something so i had a really bad bout of health anxiety about 6 or 7 years ago when i had like a panic attack that lasted about 11 days was this the one where you thought you had cancer yeah and i saw my therapist and when i got home because i was on holiday at the time and she sent me to a psychiatrist who specialized in anxiety and he diagnosed me with generalized anxiety disorder but he said once you've had one of these bad panic attacks you'll probably get another one it makes you more susceptible and it had just been so completely ghastly that he said you know you might want to consider medication and i was a little bit reticent at first because I think there's probably internalized stigma that we just have about medication. Mm. And also what I realized is that my anxiety had made me so sensitive, like I didn't have caffeine or anything. So I was very worried about altering my mood, that anxiety medication might alter how I felt. Anyway, I had it best thing I ever did and I've never looked back from it. I have a drug called Lexapro and it's just been quite life-changing. So, you know, for me, it's not that I don't sometimes have breakthrough anxiety and it's not the same as stress. It's nothing like stress. Stress is fine. Stress I can handle. Mm. Stress actually, I thrive on it in a way. I can find stress quite motivating. But anxiety is just like that pit of existential dread in your stomach or it just means getting through life is just really difficult. Like if you can't fly and, you know, I had to be getting on planes all the time and that's one of the things that my anxiety had attached itself to, my life was just getting really hard to live, just logistically hard. And so, you know, now I get on planes as if I'm getting into an Uber. It's not a problem. And my health anxiety is not gone, but it's under control. I've actually just gone back to therapy just to try to sort a few things out. I'm a big believer in therapy. My mum was a therapist, so I've grown up in a family where it's seen as just like going to the dentist or, you know, going to the chiropractor or the osteo or whatever it happens to be. It's just something that you do to help manage something. That was such an interesting deep dive into anxiety because I think it's really misunderstood. Can be. I know I misunderstand it because I've just learned something from the yeah, conversation right. I've had That's with you. So, what did you think anxiety was? Well, I think there's the confusion between really high levels of stress and anxiety that attaches itself to something and it is completely and utterly debilitating. Sometimes I'll be stressed about something and my anxiety will attach itself to something else, as you say. So then I'll go, okay, what's going on for me right now? Am I anxious about something? And I'm really worried about flying. But what I'm actually worried about is this other thing over here. And it could be a work thing. It could be something to do with my kids or my something else that I'm anxious about. The thing that you often, it'll attach itself to is not necessarily the cause of it, if that makes Got sense. You. Okay. okay. So, so sometimes obviously when I'm really stressed, I'm more prone to anxiety, but they're different things, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. And that's why I need to be careful. Am I getting enough sleep? Am I out of my routine? One of the things that can trigger anxiety for me is traveling and funnily enough, holidays. Really? I oh, get really no. anxious around holidays. And it's a weird thing. I've heard it's not the most uncommon thing because anxiety often, if you're prone to it, you need to have a pretty busy mind, a bit like a cattle dog needs to have a lot of jobs on the go or it'll kind of just tear up the garden. 
the anxious mind likes structure and it likes routine and it likes distraction. And you go on holiday and suddenly you've got all this time and you've got all of this space to think and, you know, what time's breakfast? I don't know. What time do you want it to be? What are we going to do today? Where are we going to sleep tonight? And everything's new. And so for me, that can be a trigger. Makes me great fun to go on holidays. Yeah. <laughs> I never understood why I always wanted to come home early from every holiday I'd, I'd ever been on, including my honeymoon. Gosh. Until I learned more about anxiety. Wow. Yeah. That's you a- talked about the sleep and everything. What are other tools or things you'd recommend others try? Exercise. I mean, I am, I'm also a really big believer in medication and I am not going to pretend that I don't rely on medication heavily. Exercise is a non-negotiable for me. I used to think, because I had an eating disorder when I was young, when I was a teenager, I had bulimia. And so I've always been really, since my 20s, I've been very strict about exercising. And I always used to think that it had to do with body image. And it, again, only since learning more about anxiety, I've realized that I've been instinctively using it to treat my anxiety exercise for anxiety and depression can just be an absolute game changer. So now I exercise seven days a week. It's non-negotiable. I don't even think about it. It's like brushing my teeth. Has anxiety ever stopped you from being able to take risks? Um, Particularly thinking about the business. Really? No. I love taking risks. Having said that, my husband is the CEO. So ultimately, there are risks to take together as co-owners of the business. But one of our core values is measure twice, cut once, because I can be a bit too into taking risks, whereas he's very much like we've got to do, do some measuring before we make the cut. So whereas I'm like, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. Mm, so if anything, I'm much more just pushing forward, pushing forward, pushing forward, pushing forward. I've got 10 podcasts that I want to launch this year and I just have to try not to break the people around me. Yeah. <laughs> so – Just moving on now, what does success look like for Mia Friedman? I wanted to start Mamma Mia because I knew what it felt to look in a magazine and not see anyone that looked like me. I knew what it felt like to stand in a bookstore and not see any book that was about miscarriage at a time before the internet when I'd lost a baby halfway through my pregnancy and I felt like the only person in the world who had failed my baby and to that level and I felt completely alone. And I didn't want any other woman to have to feel that way. So Mamma Mia started with this instinctive desire for every woman to feel seen and reassured and included and represented. And so success to me feels like making a difference for women, whether it's by posting a photo of my stomach and making someone go, oh, thank God, I'm not the only one who doesn't have a thigh gap and a rock-hard abs. Six-pack, yeah. Yeah, a six-pack, two days after giving birth. So how will you know when you're done? I'll never be done. (laughs) Never be done. There's always another podcast to launch, always another business to help start, always another woman to help, you know, feel better about herself. Because, you know, we live in a world that tells us we're shit a lot of the time and it's exhausting If you look back, what would you say has been the toughest moment? The toughest moment. There have been a few social media pylons that have been really tough, I won't lie. I think the toughest moment in our business, though, was probably when we went from startup to scale up. That's a really dangerous time and it's a time that I wouldn't have picked as dangerous because it's like, hey, money's coming in the door, we're hiring lots of people. 
gosh, there's more hands on deck. That should be a fantastic time. But it's actually a really, really dangerous time, that time of growth for a couple of reasons. The first is that culturally what makes you great as a startup is not what can make you work as a scale-up. It's a completely different culture. What makes you great as a startup, and I'm happiest in startup culture, I have to say, is the kind of seat of your pants, freewheeling, risk-taking, move fast and break things. But as a scale-up and a grown-up business, you can't move fast and break the things because the things are quite expensive (laughs) when you've scaled up. And what are the key sort of challenges and lessons that you've had working you know, with your husband, with Jason in the business and at home? Well, we have separate bathrooms and we drive to work separately. That is key. (laughs) And I'm not even joking. It wasn't easy at first because I think I had an ego about, at first I was just grateful that there was someone else to lighten the load and I didn't have to pay them because I had no money. So it was like, oh, yay. And then it was like, well, I don't really want to consult you. I'm used to making all the decisions. It was your baby. It was my baby. So then that was a bit of a, and then it was like, no, I don't like your idea. I don't think it'll work. And then his ideas generally did work. And that was annoying. And then it was like, oh, hang on. I want to be the boss. And then I realized, you know what? I actually don't want to be the boss. I I really don't want to be the CEO. It's a much harder job than mine. It does not play to any of my strengths. Go for it. And that was a few years ago that I really relinquished that. I wasn't jockeying for position anymore and I let my ego go. That must be hard to do sometimes though. Was there a catalyst? Was there something that happened or, you know, because it takes maturity and strength to do that. I think I realized that I was fighting for a job that I didn't want. Like I really didn't want it. So I learned how to lean into my strengths and even to the point where now nobody reports to me in any official capacity because I've been managing people for so many years. I've been managing particularly young women for about, I don't know, more than 20 years and I'm a bit tired of it and burnt out by it and I don't want to do it anymore. I think the hardest times of working together are behind us. But, you know, there were times when we'd each just try to quit. (laughs) I quit. No, you can't quit. I quit. (laughs) We have to take it in turns to threaten to quit. That's classic. (laughs) You talked about managing young women and, you know, we have very sort of similar values and want to make it easier for women to co-create in our future society, you know, and so that's so important. What do you think – if at all, you know, how have career problems changed for young women today versus when you started in women's media? That's such ago? a good question. I think that there is probably an expectation of more flexibility in terms of being able to work from home or being able to work four days or whatever it is. By the same token, I think that as a boss, there are expectations of availability that are more than they used to be, you know, being able to contact people at all hours, which is why I always make sure when new people join the company, if they work with me in my area that I say, hey, I might email you or slack you at all hours, but I don't ever expect a reply until you're next back at work. I think that We were much more focused on the ladder, the career ladder. And I think what I try to explain to people now is that it's more like a lattice. Career paths are more like a lattice because there are very few ladders and your ladder limits you. And what's much more important now is being more lateral in your skill set. So not just being able to write because then what happens when podcasts come along and suddenly people aren't reading anymore you want to be able to try to do video and you want to know a bit about social and you want to know a bit about podcasting. And the more laterally, certainly as a content creator, you can go, the more valuable you're going to be to your future employers. And I try to say also, particularly to my content teams, 
don't get obsessed with this idea of progressing and becoming an editor because editors are actually more dispensable than content creators. Content creators are the ones that can get the profile, that can get the following, and that are probably more valuable to employers. Talking of advice, you're now 47. Yes. So what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? I probably would say have a shot of tequila before you get the tattoo because <laughs> I got a tattoo on my 30th birthday. Did you birthday. really? I did. Uh, where was it? It if was you a can... tramp stamp oh. or a scrag tag as they're sometimes known on my lower back. Amy Schumer style, the girl with the lower whoa, back whoa. tattoo. That's me. Very original. It's an Aztec design. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, so I was at a, you know, I, I suppose my headspace at 30 I was a single parent. I was kind of grieving for a baby that I'd lost halfway through a pregnancy. I guess I would say forget about the checklist, you know, forget about the way you thought things were going to go and just be open to the way they might be and slow down. Don't be in such a rush because I think being in such a rush to be the editor first and have a baby and then have another baby and then buy a big house, that's ultimately what caused my marriage to collapse. And I think that foundations I've come to learn is the most unsexy word, but the most crucial thing, whether it's in romantic relationships, in friendships or in careers, anything that happens quickly will probably unhappen quickly because when the wind blows, your house will fall down if you don't have those foundations built. So- do you have a philosophy or a motto that you live by in your life? <laughs> Poppy King, who is the first lady startup and female entrepreneur that I ever knew, she started a lipstick line when she was, I think, 19. And there were no other people her age or any age outside the Estee Lauders and the Revlons that were making lipsticks. And I reconnected with her a few years ago, just when I was starting my career in, in magazines. She was starting her career in lipstick and I was a beauty editor at the time. So we kind of came up together. But she sort of flamed out in Australia and then went overseas and did some things over there. And we met up and we were talking about what had happened to us in the preceding 20 years and some of the bad things and the disappointments and the failures. And she said, you know, success just confirms what you already know about yourself. Failure is the only true teacher. Mm. And so we've got a word called flurning, which is failing and learning, which is a way to make yourself feel better about failing. You say, <laughs> what, have, what have I learned from this failure? But it's true. What have I flurned? What have I flurned? What have our flurnings been? Our flurnings. Okay. And so you say, you know, I guess it's like the, what's the silver lining on this really shitty cloud? It's what have I learned from this? Because if you're not failing, then you're probably not trying. I mean, there's no entrepreneur who won't fail because you can't grow unless you make some wrong decisions as well as some right ones. So I guess it's what you can learn from from your failings, the, the flirting. Brilliant motto. Brilliant. Well, <laughs> Mia, thank you so much. Thank it's, you both for having me. It's been such a pleasure to sit next to you and, and just learn about this amazing journey that you've been on and this incredible platform that you've built to give women a voice. Now, our listeners, I know, are likely to want to know a bit more about you. So sure. how can they find you? That's not a stupid question. Okay. So you can go to any 
iTunes, whatever, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you search Mamma Mia, M-A-M-A-M-I-A, you can find our podcasts or you can just search No Filter for the interview podcast that I do. And then Instagram is my platform of choice. So it's just at Mia Friedman, double E-D-M-A-N. Thank you so much. We really loved it. And we wish you every success in building this platform. I don't think you really need it, to be honest. But um, And every success with this podcast. Thank you so much. Which I love listening to. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love how Mia is so passionate and brave. I mean, it must have taken such a lot of grit to hang in on that television job and insist that she got the redundancy she deserved. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it was that redundancy that helped her start her blog back in 2007, which became the thriving business Mama Mia is today. Indeed it is. I thought Maria's career advice to women who work for her was really interesting as well. Not to think of their career as a ladder with just step up, step up, you know, upwards progression, but to also think of it as a lattice with sideways and diagonal steps being just as valuable. I think that makes absolute sense. Get some breadth and future-proof your career. Well, that's this week's episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for an inspiring interview with the international fashion icon Caroline Issa. See you then. Ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.